Okay, I'm going to introduce this again since Tara has joined us and so that she knows what is going on because this can be quite overwhelming if you don't know. Um, this is the beginning, or I should say the end, of a series that we've done on the atonement. Uh, looking at it through the eyes of Ellen White, we began with looking at her chapter, Desire of Ages, uh, the chapter is finished, which is chapter 79. And we examined that via a commentary and discovered that her views of atonement are really very descriptive, as in descriptive law, descriptive realities of life, such as experiential uh, living and so on. And commonly, the atonement has been presented in a legal construct uh, as legal payment and so on. And she uses legal language. So what our next step after we finished that chapter was to try to harmonize her legal statements with the statements that are fairly, uh, that are descriptive in nature. So that's what we've been doing. We're on hopefully the last day of this. Uh, and then what we're going to do is take the time to discuss what does this mean in terms of daily living and how we treat other people and, and how we live our lives on this planet. So uh, that will be uh, not next week, but the week following. Next week, I will be in the choir room Sabbath school. So um, we'll be talking about Hosea. And you're all welcome to attend, as usual. Okay. So we're starting with number statement number 25. That's in the sheaf of papers titled Ellen G. White's Use of Forensic Terminology. Yeah. So you want to kind of hold your finger at one and, and read another. Number 25, and I'll begin reading. Through the plan of salvation, a larger purpose is to be wrought out even than the salvation of man and the redemption of the earth. Through the revelation of the character of God in Christ, the beneficence of the divine government would be manifested before the universe, the charge of Satan refuted, the nature and result of sin made plain, and the perpetuity of the law fully demonstrated. Satan had declared that the law of God was faulty and that the good of the universe demanded a change in its requirement. In attacking the law, he thought to overthrow the authority of its author and gain for himself the supreme allegiance. But through the plan of salvation, the precepts of the law were to be proved perfect and immutable, that at last only glory and love might rise to God throughout the universe, ascribing glory and honor and praise to him that sitteth upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. To fallen man was revealed the plan of infinite sacrifice through which salvation was to be provided. Nothing but the death of God's dear Son could expiate man's sin. And Adam marveled at the goodness of God in providing such a ransom for the sinner. Through the love of God, a star of hope illumined the terrible future that spread before the transgressor. Are there any terms in this passage that you don't understand? This, this passage has some really heavy terms that we don't use commonly, and so you may not be familiar with them. I'm thinking, let me run through them. Uh, perpetuity of the law. What does that mean? That's, that's the first word that's... That was going to be my question. <laughs> okay. Could that be... Um, could perpetuity 
Does perpetuity mean um, the the everlastingness, or how 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 long it will last, or forever? Yeah. Yeah. Um, perpetuity rests upon the same root as perpetual. Mm-hmm. So it's without end. It's it's constant. Okay. Let's move to another word. Okay, the word expiate, and I'm trying to find it. Okay, in the last paragraph, yes, nothing but the death of God's dear son could expiate man's sin. Anybody have an idea what that is? Okay, I'll take a stab at it. Uh, Expiate means kind of to undo something. It means to, it's rooted in the concept of cleansing, of removal. Uh, of removing sin, uh, removing blame, removing something like that. Uh, expiate means making up for something, uh, compensating for something. It has, it has all that. It's kind of in that range of, of thinking. It is one step beyond appeasement. Okay? It is, is, it's close to appeasement, but some uh, theologians are more comfortable using expiation rather than uh, propitiation, mm-hmm. which means appeasement. Perfect, the precepts of the law were proved to be perfect and immutable. Yeah. Unchanging, yes. Can't mutate it. <laughs> it's immutable. Then, I, I think that's it. Now, do you remember from our study of the chapter in Desire of Ages what we concluded regarding how Jesus' death upheld the law. In other words, proved it to be unchanging, proved it to be forever, uh, without end. How do, do you remember how we concluded that? That was in the conclusion of the document we read. And I don't want to take the time to look that up, but I'd, rather, I'd like to refresh our memories on it. Wasn't it that Jesus was showing that sin will always have its consequences? Exactly. That it's the Son of God. The word she uses is inevitability. Yeah. Uh, so if, if co- the consequences are inevitable, that is, uh, God isn't destroying the wicked, but sin is what destroys it. It's an inevitable result of sin. If it's that, then the law can't be changed. It's, it's as fixed as our perception of the law of gravity is fixed. In other words, you can't, if you fiddle with the law of gravity, what would happen to this planet? Uh, it would, it would, uh, well, it would cease to be kind of what it is, and we could not, we could not live on it if we changed it. So that's, that's kind of uh, where I wanted to start. And then, uh, do you have any questions or comments about this paragraph before we move to the commentary? I find it interesting how, again, she explains that it's nothing but the Son of God's death. Nothing else could have been a more perfect example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Anything else? Her use of the word uh, ransom, does that kind of imply a substitutionary kind of idea that she's using? It can. It doesn't have to. Ransom comes out of the ransom theory which was the earliest theory Christians had about the atonement. Uh, and in the ransom theory, 
Satan claimed to hold us hostage because we we accepted his terms, so to speak. Um, they didn't understand that he had lied to us about God's character and all that. But they understood that we were we were kind of captive by Satan through sin, and that Jesus' death. He wanted. He demanded that we die. You know, he he held us ransom to unhostage to death, and Jesus by by dying uh, broke that. He became our ransom to ransom us from death. And there is substitu- kind of a substitutionary, but it's a very loose substitutionary idea. It's not a legal construct. Uh, but he he died to ransom us, and. Satan thought he had Jesus, but Jesus tricked him. <laughs> this is kind of the this is this is now the the critical view of the ransom theory rather than the ransoms. I don't know that this really was held by the proponents of the ransom theory, but it's been criticized is that Jesus tricked the devil and rose from the dead, and and therefore <laughs> he yeah. Uh, Sounds like the Chronicles of Narnia. It's okay. Uh, Caitlin says it sounds like the Chronicles of Narnia, and and that's very possibly where C.S. Lewis got it. Mm. Is is from the criticisms of the ransom theory. He was he was pretty uh, aware of the different theologies in Christianity, and he but he drew them in a, in a more artsy kind of way than than uh, in in a direct way of arguing. One thing I'd like to point out to you about this uh, statement, and it follows what uh, Alex was referring to, that nothing but the death of God's dear son could expiate man's sin, that is, remove it, deal with it. Uh, one, there's a, a verse in the Bible in th- that Jesus died to deal, he came to deal with sin. And, and that's a, a, a nice way of encapsulating everything he did. But nothing but the death of God's dear son could expiate men's sin. And Adam marveled at the goodness of God in providing such a ransom for the sinner through the love of God. A star of hope illumined the terrible future that spread before the transgressor. That's kind of a summary line there, as though the love of God encapsulates everything that Jesus accomplished by his death. Which means that whatever Jesus did by his death, has to fit and harmonize with love. And at some point, I think, when we discuss how this applies to our life uh, towards the end of the quarter, I think that we're going to have to define the term love because uh, love to some people is not the same thing as it is to me and to what I see in the Bible. So why don't we move now to the other handout. And Tara, this is called Thoughts on Atonement Statements. And, and we want to find number 25 again. This statement gives us a dimension we need. The death of Jesus was needed for the entire universe because the whole universe was ex- affected to some degree, though they did not fall by Satan's charges against God. Note the three things that Jesus' death accomplished and note the order in which he places them. The beneficence of the divine government, the nature and the result of sin made plain, and the perpetuity of the law fully demonstrated. Note that all three of these things were brought about through the revelation of the character of God in Christ. 
We can draw from this that Jesus reveal, what Jesus revealed was that God's government truly rested on love, truth, and trust, and that obedience to the law of love equals becoming loving people internally is beneficial to humanity. Indeed, the law of love is the law of life. Furthermore, by his death, Jesus demonstrated that any alternative to love, truth, and trust leads to death. Said another way, he fully showed that his government, resting on love, truth, and trust, was the only way to maintain life, freedom, goodwill, peace, and happiness. The law of love, therefore, is eternal, and it can never change. Even more, Jesus' death revealed that breaking the law of love inevitably leads to death. Thus, the law of love was indeed descriptive and thus unchanging. Okay, I want to pause there. Uh, are there any questions or comments? In the legal construct, you can only talk about everything in a legal construct if you ignore or eliminate the possibility that the law is the law of love. Because love is not a legal term. And it's not a legal concept. And nobody asks in a courtroom, did you love your mother before you killed her? I mean, they might. Um, that document you gave me reminds me of that kind of question because that came up. But they were working from a different construct yes. than a legal one to ask those kinds of questions. Once we establish that the law is the law of love, and it's, that, is, that, that God is its embodiment, and we recognize that only by love is love awakened, uh, to use Ellen White's phrase. Once we establish that, we're no longer in a legal construct. We're operating in a different, in a descriptive construct entirely. So I wanted to point that out. Um, because there are some well-meaning uh, forensic scholars in the Adventist Church who are maintaining that their metaphor is being ignored by many Adventists, and so therefore it needs to be uh, stated and explained more thoroughly and, and pro propounded, uh, and that all metaphors are important, and so love, truth, and trust is just a metaphor instead of a concrete reality. And I, I, I beg to differ. They're not metaphors. They're something beyond metaphors. And, and more than that, what I find, the more I study the study the descriptive nature of these things, the more I realize they're in direct diametric opposition to the legal construct. Hmm. So that this, this claim that we need all the metaphors and they're like golf clubs, uh, which is the illustration one person used recently, uh, <laughs> and you simply need a, the right golf club for the right setting, That's, there's truth in that in that if a person is in a legal construct and they can't conceive of love, then you sometimes have to talk in legal talk to meet them where they are. That's understandable. But, but to say that they're all on equal par and that none are to be preferred above another, I think is, is uh, ultimately fallacious because I, I find that the legal construct and the descriptive construct are not at all alike and they breed very different kinds of relationships when they work out and translate into our lives. 
Uh, and I, the best way I can understand that is to study how human beings related to one another in a very legal construct in Mesopotamia. Uh, the, the Babylonian way of life was entirely legal. Everything was built on legal relationships. Uh, you needed a legal contract to have any kind of relationship at all. And once you have that kind of a relationship, you no longer have this, this sense of trust Everything is, is on, uh, uh, and, and we can understand and relate that if we think about how litigious our society has become so that we can no longer kind of be real people dealing with real things and, and relate to others in real ways because we're afraid of a lawsuit. So I see the legal model and the healing trust model, as it's sometimes called, as mutually exclusive, ultimately. There may be some overlap, and a lot of people, when they're making a transition into a descriptive model, will often try to combine the two in a kind of soup that doesn't quite hold together. The flavors are very distinct and separate, and and when you eat it, it doesn't quite taste coherent, (laughs) if I can use that metaphor. Okay, why don't we move to the next paragraph? The next paragraph suggests that Satan claimed God's law of love was faulty. To substantiate it, Satan made several charges against God. First, God desired to exalt himself. Second, God did not practice self-denial, the core ingredient of love that makes it unselfish. And thirdly, that God was unforgiving and severe. And fourthly, that God's justice and mercy were in conflict so that he could not be just and merciful at the same time. In his attempt to manufacture improvements on God's government, he turned to external control, trying to make a system that would make people appear good while internally their hearts were evil. Is that the legal model? I mean, Jesus covers us so that God can't see how bad we've really been. Shall we move on to the next line, or do you have any comments or observations, questions? Okay, why don't we move on. Tara, why don't you read the next paragraph? The final lines of the second paragraph create a doxology, reflecting the perceptions of those who know God as he really is and have responded to his love. They serve to remind us of the word worthy, used in the seven stanza hymn of Revelation. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might honor and glory and blessing. The term worthy implies that worship is truly worth-ship, bestowed not out of abject fear or from obligation or from duty. Worth implies a testing of the heart that brings out the demonstration of the evidence that someone is truly what is claimed for him or her. God's worthiness means that he has shown amply that he deserves our love, trust, and worship without pretending, forcing ourselves to worship, or manufacture a form of obedience without the internal response to his love. Before we go on, anything that you want to note, observe, comment on, or ask questions about? Okay. I I like um, uh, verse, uh, I think it's out of Romans, that 
the love of God um, will lead us to repentance. I think goodness. I I I think um, that if if we um, I, I think because of God's sacrifice and because of God's love that um, it, it it will lead us to repentance, and, but not just repentance, but worship. And um, and I like what you said. Uh, what, what you say is that. God is the only being that can love without being loved. I think that's powerful and it helps us to be able to worship. Okay. Alex, who wants it? Um, just one of the things that I was noting is I think part of the power of this theology is the idea that God is inherently worthy. Uh, and with that in mind, it it just to me it seems that any kind of external re- enforcement of that is superfluous and arbitrary it wouldn't make sense it undercuts it doesn't it yeah because once you, you know, once you feel it's imposed on you and you have to worship him you no longer are worshiping him because true worship is a response and a forced response is not a response. It's it's something else. Yeah, uh, I have more and more come to treasure the lines in Revelation, Worthy art thou to receive glory and honor and power. And that's the heartbeat of Revelation, is that God is worthy. And, and when we really understand what that term worthy means, that it is inherent, that he has demonstrated it, it has been proven, it has been shown, and it's not commanded, it, it's, it makes that whole book change. And now you understand why the two great metaphors of the book that typify the war, the great controversy, are the beast and the lamb. The beast being the culmination of arbitrariness, of external enforcement, of power, of of dominion, of domination, of fear, of tyranny, and and oppression. And the lamb. Have you ever followed a lamb? You have to really want to follow a lamb to follow a lamb. (laughs) (laughs) They, they, they They don't compel you at all to follow them. So I I just see this as as just we can't say enough about it I think uh, okay. In the third paragraph, Ellen White points out that only Jesus' death could expiate human sin. To expiate is to make amends, make up for something bad. Since human sinfulness is the result of believing Satan's lies about God, sin, and the nature of the law, only Jesus' death really revealed the truth about each of these things. Jesus' death showed that God's love was indeed self-sacrificing and unselfish. It showed the nature and result of sin, first paragraph, and thus that God was not the arbitrary destroyer, rather sin destroyed sinners. It demonstrated that God's law was descriptive and thus unchanging. Okay. Any questions or comments or observations? I think that pretty much says what needs to be said. Uh, let's move back now to statement number 26. And this is the last one in this section. I do hope to finish today this document. And Adam, I'll let you read. Um, let's see. It is, why don't you read a paragraph and we'll just pass the honor around. Okay. Um, when Christ cried out from the cross, 
It is finished. All heaven triumphed. The controversy between Christ and Satan in regard to the execution of the plan of salvation was ended. The spirit of Satan and his works was taken, uh, had taken deep root in the affections of the uh, children of men. But the holy angels were horror-stricken that one of their number could fall so far as to be capable of such cruelty as had been manifested toward the Son of God on Calvary. Every sentiment of pity and sympathy which they had ever felt for Satan in his exile was quenched in their hearts. That his envy should be manifested in such a revenge upon an innocent person was enough to strip him of his assumed role of celestial light and to reveal the hideous deformity beneath. But to manifest such malignity towards the divine Son of God who had with unprecedented self-denial and love for the creatures formed in his image come from heaven and assumed their fallen nature was such a heinous crime against heaven that it caused the angels to shudder with horror and severed the last tie of sympathy existing between Satan and the heavenly world. Any, any questions or comments? This is more familiar turf, isn't it? It feels a little bit like the Desire of Ages, chapter 79. Just one observation, the tie of sympathy, what she means by that is they no longer saw that Satan had any kind of cause. You know, his, they saw him as completely false. And the other thing I, I might like to point out is it possible we can draw a parallel to this and what Adventists fear so much, which is the time of trouble, um, to suggest that the same pl- thing has to play out, that we have to see the legal construct and how it translates into the life for all it is worth. And that, that, is, that there's the legal model that will actually bring about the final persecution. I just throw that out there for you to muse about, and we won't we won't go into that in depth because until that's been shown, it isn't going to make a whole lot of sense. But uh, I just raised that question. Okay, Eric. When Christ died on Calvary's cross, he exclaimed in his expiring agony, "It is finished!" And Satan knew that he had been defeated in his purpose to overthrow the plan of salvation. When the Son of God came forth from Joseph's sepulchre a triumphant conqueror over death, and broke the fetters of the tomb. He led forth the captives that Satan had bound in the grave. He presented to the world a sample of the great resurrection day, when all who have fallen asleep in Jesus shall be raised to a glorious immortality. They shall come forth from the graves at the trump of God, and shall ascend to the city of God and see the king in his beauty. When Christ cried, It is finished, the great sacrifice was complete. Satan and his angels were uprooted from the affection of the universe. Satan had taken such a course of deception that the angels of heaven had been in doubt of his real character. God moves in a straightforward course. It was impossible for God to lie. But Satan was as crooked as a serpent. All heaven rejoiced when Christ rose from the dead. He had power to bind the strong man and to despoil him of his goods. We should behold Christ and his matchless charms. We should accept him as our righteousness. He came to exalt the law of God. He took upon him our nature that he might reach man in his fallen condition. His death exalts the law of God and presents to the universe and to the world 
the law of God as changeless in its character. The transgression of the law could be forgiven only through the sacrifice of the Son of God. Okay. Any questions, comments, observations? Yeah, I'll just hold on. So with our paradigm that Jesus was not a substitute for punishment, uh, how do we interpret the second sentence of the last paragraph? We should accept him as our righteousness. <laughs> what does that mean experientially? I would say like someone to emulate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. His kind of righteousness is what we because he he came did he not to show us how to be righteous not just how in the sense of this is this is righteousness and that's that's important because in light of satan's lies who were the most righteous people of jesus day the pharisees uh the people who held to the law the legal constructs and and what is fascinating, this will all come together when we start studying the Old Testament, the legal model, and, and how the Old Testament breaks out of that, and then study Judaism and how it went the full legal construct because of emulating Babylon. Mm. Uh, it'll, it'll eventually all come together. Uh, next year, <laughs> yes, and Alex is grieving. <laughs> Remember, it's online; you can't get it. <laughs> um, but I think that in an experiential relationship, Christ is our righteousness as a real experience with Him, and that what Jesus came was to demonstrate that experience in his closeness and how he trusted his father, how he insisted on people's faith, how he illustrated the gospel by the way he healed people. Your faith has made you whole. You trusted me. Go in peace. Um, I, I, I see that as unpacking because what Satan had claimed is the only way that anybody can be righteous is through the law uh, the, as he constructed it, as he construed it, the external control, the fear, and all of those things. If you want some reinforcement on fear being Satan's paradigm, listen to Carol Kornaki. Is it Kornaki? I have to look that up. Um, Carol Kornaki was a Satanist, and she became a Christian. And she has she has given whole. Uh, I don't know if you could call them sermons, lectures, whatever, telling how Satanists hone the skills of making people terrified and, and intimidated. And they use that to gain control. And they're taught this. This is, this is the way of Satanism. Uh, so that's, that's just, I, I threw that in there because sometimes it's easy to get confused on that because we have been taught, fear the Lord. The word fear, though, in the Old Testament has a wide range of meaning, as do all Hebrew words. They have, they're a spectrum of meaning. They don't mean just one thing. And to fear the Lord really means to respect Him, to reverence Him. 
not to be afraid of him. Okay, let's move then now to number 26 in the other document. This is page 9. This is the document on atonement. Thoughts on atonement statements. You're right here. And I'll begin to read. All but the last paragraph of this statement is clear and fits well with her understanding. The final paragraph raises a couple of questions. What does it mean to accept Christ as our righteousness? <laughs> Why could transgression of the law be forgiven only through the sacrifice of Christ? The first question relates to the imputation, imputing of Christ's righteousness to us. This is how it's used in, in legal construct. Uh, we have this filthy past of sinning, and Jesus imputes his righteousness to us covers us with it uh, and therefore we now are in his righteousness and, and so God doesn't see how bad we've really been he only sees the righteousness of his son so That's means it, it, impute means to apply to one's account it's, it's an economic term uh, to apply to one's account so as to adjudicate or adjust, just, uh, adjust their, their account so that it comes out okay so it's like we have this great debt in the bank account and Jesus puts in his righteousness and fills up that debt. replenishes it. Note this example. This is from a book one of Selected Messages, page 392. The Lord imputes unto the believer the righteousness of Christ and pronounces him righteous before the universe. He transfers his sins to Jesus, the sinner's representative, substitute and surety. Upon Christ he lays the iniquity of every soul that believeth. Now, I believe Jesus is our substitute, but not in a legal sense. So the question is, how do we understand that paragraph through a different lens? Most people view this through a transactional lens. Jesus took our sins. We accept his righteousness. What does this mean, though, in practical experience? Perhaps we need to look at this through the lens Ellen White gives it in this very statement. The Lord, meaning God the Father, imputes unto the believer the righteousness of Christ and pronounces him the righteous before the universe. It is God the Father who pronounces us righteous to the universe, not Christ to the Father. This reminds us that God runs a consensual government in which every last member of his loyal, intelligent creation must be persuaded about every issue on, wi- on the weight of evidence. That m- means that our guardian angel, who knows us so well, must be convinced that Satan's accusations against us are invalid and false. The angels and the other and other intelligent beings in the universe recognize that Jesus' life and death demonstrated the basis and the means by which sinful human beings can be rescued from tyranny of sin and Satan's kingdom of force. Jesus' righteous life stands for ours because it demonstrates that we can become, through knowing him, coming to love him in response to his love, and to trust him because we find him to be trustworthy. What makes this all possible is Jesus' revelation of the character of the Father. For this reason, she rephrases these heavy Latin terms, imputed and imparted, 
in the following paragraph, taken from her article, God Made Manifest in Signs of the Times, January 20th, 1890. My mentor loved this whole article, uh, Graham Maxwell, and he used to pass it out and read it from time to time. I don't know how many times I heard him read this. Okay. Christ came to save fallen man, and Satan with fiercest wrath met him on the field of conflict. For the enemy knew that when divine strength was added to human weakness, man was armed with power and intelligence and could break away from the captivity in which he had bound him. Satan sought to intercept every ray of light from the throne of God. He sought to cast his shadow across the earth that men might lose the true views of God's character and that the knowledge of God might become extinct in the earth. He had caused truth of vital importance to be so mingled with error that it had lost its significance. The law of Jehovah was burdened with needless exactions and traditions, and godless were represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. He was pictured as one who could take pleasure in the sufferings of his creatures. The very attributes that belong to the character of Satan, the evil one, represented as belonging to the character of God. Jesus came to teach men of the Father to correctly represent him before the fallen children of earth. Angels could not fully portray the character of God, but Christ, who was a living impersonation of God, could not fail to accomplish the work. The only way in which he could set and keep men's right was to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. That men might have salvation, he came directly to man and became a partaker of his nature. So you see how she changes terms here. From imputed is set us right. And from imparted, it's keep us right. That's, that's what the terms she uses instead of those heavy Latin terms which uh, Christians have used for, for many centuries as legal terms. So what, what I'm trying to say here is that she, establish, she establishes that Jesus, by his life and death, established the basis by which God could convince the universe that we were safe to save. Because imagine angels who know us better than we know ourselves because they get to watch all the messy stuff we get into. How are they going to know that, I mean, God's planning to bring us to be their neighbors for eternity. That's a daunting thought to an angel who's never fallen. So th- this, is, this is, again, a God who does not do anything privately without his universe knowing. He's open, he's consensual, and he has to persuade the universe of the rightness of his ways at all times including bringing us home. So it isn't for the Father. The Father knows us inside and out. He doesn't, it isn't that Jesus blinds him or hides our sinfulness uh, as a fake, as a facade. I think that's the problem, is that this imputed righteousness has been thought of as a facade to cover us. Mm-hmm. And, and think how many people love having facades to cover themselves with. Uh, to try to hide what they've done from other people. No, it's not a facade. It is the redemption of the human being. It is setting them right. It is both 
up there and down here in our hearts. Because once we come to trust God, God, because of Jesus' death, it's been clear that sin leads to death. If sin leads to death, repentance, turning away from sin, leads to life. And, and that's why Ezekiel 18 is a fantastic chapter. If we had the time, I'd have you look at it today. Uh, but Ezekiel 18 uh, it talks about a proverb that the Israelites were raising all the time, that the fathers have sinned and their children's teeth are set on edge, meaning the sins of the fathers are transferred to their children and they're made, the children are made to p- punished for the sins of their father. And Ezekiel says, no, that is not what God is like. The soul that sins shall die. If a man sins, his son does not bear the punishment of his sin. He bears it himself. And if the son sins, he bears his own punishment. But if a man repents and turns away from his sin, there's no punishment. There's nothing because he's turned away from sin and sin is what causes him to die. And finally, at the end of the chapter, Ezekiel says, I, for thus says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of him who dies. And that word pleasure can mean business. It can actually mean that God is saying, I have nothing to do with the death of the wicked, but I have everything to do with that he turn and live. So that's what Jesus' death demonstrated. He demonstrated that sin is causal. It isn't something punitive. It isn't something um, legal that God must externally impose punishment on. Sin leads to death. And because sin leads to death, turning away from sin leads to life. Not that we lead ourselves to life. What turns us around from sin? The goodness of God leads us to repentance. So it's the goodness of God that turns us around. The goodness of God leads us to trust. The goodness of God leads us to a full relationship with God. And the goodness of God leads us by beholding to become changed. That's it. So it's, it's all a, a descriptive construct instead of a legal one. Okay, Tara. We will have more to say about this later, but for now, to set someone right is God imputing Christ's righteousness to them, which they accept. And to keep someone right is for God to impart the same righteousness to them so that their lives become wholly transformed. More simply, the love and goodness of God that leads us to repentance, confession, forgiveness, and trust is the same love of God that transforms us into His image. The second question above, why could we be forgiven only through Christ's sacrifice? We have already answered. Without the full revelation of the character of God and of the nature and consequences of sin, without establishing the fact that the law of love, relational and descriptive as it is, cannot be changed, we cannot be one fully back to God. We are not likely to fully accept his forgiveness or appreciate his righteous character without the knowledge that Jesus' death came to give us. Okay, any, any questions or observations? We're, we have just two summary paragraphs here, so this is a good time. Yes? Does that mean that forgiveness and grace are just kind of a given for God, and it's almost up to us to accept it? So there's, there's nothing preventing him from forgiving us. When, when Jesus, or I should say, when Yahweh makes this self-disclosure to Moses on Mount Sinai, and he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, 
gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and mercy and truth, forgiving transgression. The words used for all of those are participles. And participles mean that the action reflects on the person who does it. That is, they are the kind of person who does this. And so God is the forgiver. That is his character. Jesus didn't make him a forgiver. <laughs> Let's forever get rid of that notion. Um, what enables him to forgive by Jesus' death is that the death of Jesus established his right to forgive because that had been brought into question. It didn't change his character of forgiveness. It just revealed his character. Yeah. That, it, that it's very important that we get grasp these concepts because uh, we've been steeped in so long in the other model, and and it's so easy to it's easy for me. I I changed models when I was fourteen, fifteen, in there, and you would think a lifetime of. I won't tell you how many years now <laughs> of being in the other model. You would think I would totally be trans- transferred over. But I still wrestle. I still wrestle because 14 years of being raised in the other model, really, I, I remember sitting in a ser- church service where the pastor was grinding through, and I mean it felt like grinding through, mm-hmm. the legal perception of why Jesus had to die. And I remember feeling like it doesn't make a grain of sense. <laughs> I didn't grasp it. I didn't understand it. But it still lodged in my head. And uh, so, yes, let's let's make it clear forever that God is this kind of person. And all the cross did was reveal to us and to the universe that this is so. And he has the right to be who he is. Okay, Adam, you want to read? So now we have worked our way through statements that have challenged us and made us rethink our explanations for why Jesus had to die. Why should we believe all that Ellen White's statements can be harmonized? And why does it take so much more explanation to do this than to merely accept them through a legal lens? Jesus said, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 17.3 Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord, Do not let the wise boast in their wisdom. Do not let the mighty boast in their might. Do not let the wealthy boast in their wealth. So let those who boast, boast in this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord. I stand with steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. In the earth for these things I delight, says the Lord. For love, trust, love, truth, and trust, and if sin is the result of believing lies about him, then does it not make sense that we would need to harmonize statements wherever inspiration works? Neither the Bible writers nor Ellen White wrote systematic theology. Here they spoke one way, there another, to try to reach all of us whose minds have been darkened by Satan's lies. The exercise of attempting to understand it all strengthens our minds, increases our trust in God, and deepens our love for Him, and prepares us to meet whatever should draw us away from Him. There we are. Well, here we are, all right. Um, And I think the next logical question is, what does this mean? How does this apply to our lives? What difference does it make which model we accept in terms of how we treat other people? 
And so for next time, which will be after Memorial Day weekend, okay, this will be in June next time we meet. <laughs> um, yeah, because next week I'm in the choir room Sabbath school, and the next week is, m- okay, and the next week is is Memorial Day weekend, and we're off. So, so we will be meeting in June, and so next time, I'm, what I'm going to do is post the article that Alex sent me online on Canvas. I would like you to try to maybe get through it if you can. It's a long article. It's going to take at least half an hour to read it which will curtail a lot of discussion time. And then the next week, I have been asked by a student to hear their testimony at another church, and that church meets, of course, at 11 o'clock. Is there a possibility that we could meet at a different time? Could we meet at 10 or maybe 9.45? Would that be too early to ask you to get up? 945. That would be our last time. Yeah, if, if, if we could do that, um, because I don't think we're going to have, if we have to read the article and then discuss, we're not going to have adequate time to really discuss this. And I have some questions I'm developing in my head that I, I think are very important to discuss and, and lay this out because. I think this is the future of Adventism in the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have won us to love and trust you. That you have not commanded it. You have not held hell over our heads as a goad to do it. And that consequently our response to you is genuine and free. I ask that you will help us to keep it always that way, that we will always be attracted to you, that you will always uh, work in your kind and gentle way to win our trust. We know that you will. May we always perceive it that way. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 In Jesus' name. 